All right, today we're going to be talking about Wade Boggs. Yeah, one of the best all-around baseball players ever, I would say. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, Third baseman, just an amazing pure hitter. Yep. The American League's foil from the early 80s to the early aughts uh, to the National League's Tony Gwynn. I feel like he uh, gave a lot of Red Sox fans hope in those 80s. Oh, yeah. just couldn't pull it through, you know? Just tore the hearts out of him. Yeah. And he performed whenever he was called upon, unfortunately. Yes. Yeah. So true. All right. Well, let's get let's get right into it, you know? Um, yeah. Born uh, June 15th, 1958 in Omaha, Nebraska. However, he spent uh, basically his entire life up until baseball in uh, Tampa, Florida. Yeah. Tampa, Florida. Which is why I think he was so adamant about going back to Tampa later in life. Oh yeah, ending his career with the with the Devil Rays. Definitely, um, great baseball player growing up. Also a great football player. Um, just I, a good all around athlete. I feel like we've been talking a lot about these guys and how they're just great all around athletes. And it's one of these things where it's almost like they could go into either sport and be great in it. Yeah, he was a uh, quarterback um, in high school. He was also the team's place kicker and punter. And uh, he had a scholarship to uh, University of South Carolina, all rare and ready to go. Yep. But you know. He's a Hall of Fame baseball player, and he definitely chose right in that situation. Yeah, I would agree. It, it's hard to say that he would have made it in the NFL as a great quarterback, but it's one of those where you see the potential because he is just an outstanding athlete. Yeah, and that that's kind of the thing that's lost now is like parents and these club teams pushing kids into one sport at an early age, not really making them all-around athletes yeah. and giving them the type of skills that they need and just being like, go play sports. Yeah, Just, just play sports. It doesn't matter what sport, but sports sports yeah and you'd be surprised at how many of those um things transition from one sport to another oh yeah and just being a part of a team year round year round yeah and just playing and having a good time and getting that competitive edge and all the other good things and positive things that come with sports but so uh boggs let's get back to wade boggs let's talk yeah. about wade boggs get off my soapbox here he was drafted in the seventh round of the 1976 uh major league baseball draft by the boston red sox yep and uh also uh spent six years in the minors every this was the big thing that i heard people talk to him was you spent too much time in the minors yeah and that's what he agrees obviously but it's one of those things where his first season breaking through he was so ready Oh, yeah. No, like he was, he spent basically two years at single A, two years at double A, and two years at triple A. Yep. And while he might might have spent um, a decent chunk, thankfully he was drafted out of high school. So he was 24, which is kind of older when you come up, but kind of not. Like yes. you're still raring and ready to go. And it probably helped him. A funny story about the minor leagues. He played in a, I believe, 31 inning game when he was with triple A Pawtucket against the Rochester Red Wings, who were the Baltimore Orioles affiliate. Yep. And Cal Ripken Jr. was on that Rochester team. Yeah, they both played in the longest minor league game of all time. Yeah. Which is great for these two just iconic baseball players to be in this iconic baseball game. It's great. Yeah, and just like Ripken, he came up in uh, 1982 um, for Boston. and uh, just, Hold on, just like Ripken, but just like Tony, Tony Gwynn. Gwynn. And yeah. that's, I feel like that's his his uh, Bill Russell to Wilt Chamberlain. You like that? That's later. Yeah, that's exactly. But, <laughs> but it's one of these things where they never really met each other. They mm-hmm. weren't like battling each other, but every single year, I think the batting title went to one of these two players. Yeah, and they were in different leagues. In different leagues, Which made it even better, and they yeah. were both kind of similar batters. Um, 
you know, Gwyn earlier in his career was much more of a stolen base threat, a little bit better defender, but man, Bogsy, that guy, he could rake with yeah. the best of them of all time. Well, it's one of these things where he had five batting titles, but he had also eight of the, I think they were called the silver bat- Sil- so, Silver slugger, yeah. Silver slugger. Top batter at your position. Yeah. yeah. So it's one of these things where the these two, but it, you think if Tony Gwynn wasn't around, Boggs could have won like 10 batting titles, 12. Well, I mean, it's possible. Well, yeah, they weren't competing. I mean, separate leagues and stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Boggs also kind of had the end of Rod Carew's career and a lot of good hitters in the American League. And same with Gwynn in the National League. But... Um, still, it's just absolutely incredible. And in his rookie season in uh, 1982, he would have won the batting title. But they didn't have enough at bats. They bats. called him up too late. Yeah, he, and he hit 350. Yeah. in his rookie season, 349. Yeah, and they were the Red Sox were kind of worried about bringing him up. And we'll probably talk about this later in his career. He was just more of a hitter and not really a defender over at third base. Yeah, they were just like this guy hit. 300 at every single minor league level we need to find a place for him in our lineup and to his credit he batted leadoff wade boggs and one of the big reasons he batted leadoff and why he's a statistician's wet dream like a sabermetric statistician's wet dream is on base percentage was absolutely insane yeah it was crazy and he didn't have the speed of what you would think a leadoff guy was but man did he put a single i mean let's say let's put it like this 3.5 out of 10 times he was putting a single out there you know what i mean like the way he was consistently batting from the beginning of his career which i think the minor league kind of helped in that way yeah but from 82 to 88 he didn't bat below 349 and that's that's what's amazing because from 83 to 88 that's when he won won all five of his batting titles in a six-year span yes and not only that in 86 which is a very disturbing year for Red Sox fans yes. because of when it's finally when they broke through and won the AL East. He had a 368 batting average and had 240 hits. Yeah. That's like nearing George Sisler's and later after Ichiro broke it. Those records, those are like unthinkable records. Yeah, when he when he did that people weren't people didn't think anybody was going to break it and then Ichiro came around and yeah. What is a great consistent hitter like Boggs is. So it's it's one of those things where you look at these records being broken and in the in the 80s when it was happening, I don't think people thought that it was going to be broken. And what's incredible though is from 83 through 89 when he was winning these batting titles, he had seven consecutive 200 hit seasons. That's what I found the most astounding was yep. the fact that you only play 162 games a year and this is why he batted leadoff because most people think the only guys who can bat leadoff are guys with good speed who steal bases when in actuality what's truly valuable is the on-base percentage. Yeah, it's the uh, money ball take on it. It really is. You know, like, I don't <laughs> I don't want you to get thrown out at second. I just want you to get on first. And in 88 and 89, he led the league in runs scored. Yeah. I mean, and he had four consecutive 200 hit and 100 walk seasons in this span. That's so he wasn't getting struck out. That's such a there was one season in the mid 80s. I read he swung and missed at only 54 pitches the entire season. That statistic is absolutely ridiculous. And his eye at the plate was impeccable. Like just the absolute plate discipline of Wade Boggs was insane. That's what he attributed his great hitting to was that he could see the break of a ball before Mm -hmm. people could and he would talk with other players about that and they'd be like i don't see that like 
it, it's such a he he really is like ahead of the curve with identifying pitches and being that clutch hitter all the time. And I think one of the big reasons why he was such a good hitter is he knew which pitches to swing at. Yes. He and, knew which what his pitches were. Yeah. Like you look at baseball now and just the lack of plate discipline and free swinging and based on homers. And it's like, no, you want runs. You want guys on base. You want guys like he led the league. And this is what's not a very good power hitter. Like he had one season, an anomaly season where he had 24 homers, but he was like a five to 15 homers a year guy, mm-hmm. but he would always be up there leading the league or around the league lead in doubles. And because of this, he had two seasons where he led the league as a non-power hitter, as a singles hitter, leading the league in on-base plus slugging percentage. Yeah. Which... It's such a great statistic. It, it To think that you're he's getting up and he's not trying to hit the shit out of the ball. When I think of somebody, I think of Bo Jackson, mm-hmm. because he would always swing as hard as he possibly could. Yeah. Um, is the complete opposite of Boggs, who he doesn't swing necessarily as hard as he or you know what I mean but he puts the ball exactly where it needs to go and he waits for the pitch that he needs you know like he his precision I think yeah and you look at him I you can YouTube this his batting stance was kind of weird yeah because he'd be in a little bit of a crouch but he'd have his arms like kind of extended out a little but it would give him really good plate coverage and if you're not familiar with Fenway Park, I think we've talked about this in a past episode, but the way Fenway Park is constructed for left-handed hitters who are like doubles guys, it's the absolute perfect ballpark for that. Yep. Because you not only have the big gaps, but you also have in left field, which is not very far as far as hitting it out of the ballpark because it's kind of one of those old bandbox ballparks. You have the green monster, and he would just play wall ball out there. Yeah. Just, you know, double, single, double. He Double. still has the highest batting average in Fenway Park, which I think is like 365 for him. Which is insane considering you're competing with the likes of Tris Speaker, um, Ted Williams, Carl Yastrzemski. I mean, some of the That's greatest I mean. hitters can, ever. You can list these hitters. That's what Boston really had was a slew of great hitters. And Boggs, I feel like in this era, probably was one of the best. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he was he was their igniter. He was their fire starter mm-hmm. for all those teams. Like, they won the AL East in 86 and lost that World Series. Sorry, everyone, Bill Buckner. but To the magical Mets. <laughs> the amazing Mets. Yeah. I'm sure we'll uh, have an episode about them. But uh, Yeah, because that season's quite a ridiculous season because I felt like everybody going in was sure that the Red Sox were going to win. Yeah, I mean, they won the first two games yeah. at Chase Stadium. And um, Boggs had a really good series, in, yep. uh, you know, for them. But uh, just – and the funny thing is, is in 86, they almost lost the ALCS. They were down 3-1. to one, mm-hmm. And if it wasn't for a Dave Henderson home run, they would not – in game five to just make it 3-2, to two, there's no way. They wouldn't have. Yeah. Yeah. They def- he definitely came through and a uh, very consistent player. Boston was – a good team, but not a great team then. They won the division in 86. I believe they won it in uh, 88 and then 1990. But yeah. they lost in 88 and 90 to the uh, uh, Oakland A's. Those uh, roided up uh, crazy teams. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. 
You're saying that the Oakland A's of that time were roided up? Yeah, no. Tony Larusa <laughs> had no idea that Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire and the rest of that lineup were using performance-enhancing drugs. That's that's a crazy statement. I've never <laughs> even heard that before. <laughs> no, it's not like there were books out about it. Or yeah, anything. exactly. <laughs> it's not like they were breaking each other's forearms. Sorry to break your heart, Royley Reynolds. Oh, you yeah. Jose Canseco fan, you. <laughs> you Jose Canseco fan. But back, well, back to Boggs, though. Yeah. <laughs> he uh, he kind of dropped off, though, at the end of his Boston career. Yeah, so like at in the late 80s, early 90s, and what I want to get into right now, it's kind of like nerdy um, as far as baseball goes. Boston kind of falls off after that 1990 season. Yes. And after the 1990 season, even though he's raking like at a 330-plus clip, what Boston has a lot of in their minor league system are third baseman and first baseman prospects. So like Mo Vaughn, who was a really, really good player, first base, he had that lockdown. Behind Boggs at third base, you had Scott Cooper, Tim Naring, and some guy named Jeff Bagwell, who was, like Boggs at the time, a 330-a-year, 5-10 to 10 homer great guy. Great hitter, yeah. Yeah, and because they had this glut of talent, they either traded people or said, we're bringing him up instead of you. Like with Bagwell, they traded him to Houston yep. and he turned into a Hall of Famer. But they went, they were thinking, all right, we're going to go with Cooper and Naring instead because we can't move Boggs to first base. Mo Vaughn is there. Yes. And Mo Vaughn, fantastic power hitter. But so, so they end up not re signing him. Yeah. So after the 92 season, which actually was Boggs' worst year yeah. in the big leagues, he only hit 259. And I think of his 18-year career, he had only two seasons where he batted under 300. And yeah. the other one was when he was in his 40s, and we'll discuss where he went and why. Yes. But he was a career 328 hitter um, at the end of his career, but he was batting in like the 330s, 340s for his career, and he was a free agent. Boston just let him go because he's 34 years old. They thought he was pretty much done. And it so, was, was kind of like Clemens when he left yes. a few years later. They thought he was just done. They thought maybe he had a year or two that he could play, but not. they didn't want to back him like these young prospects coming up. Yeah, because they were cheaper. They had more year, uh, years of team control. Exactly. So he entered the free agent market because Boston wasn't going to give him a long-term contract, and it came down to the Dodgers and the hated New York Yankees. Yes. And I honestly think from how he's discussed this, he would have gone to L.A. and not the Yankees. Except for the Yankees gave him a third year on his contract exactly. instead of two so he went to new york in 1993 and if you don't know if you're listening to this and aren't familiar with sports uh the yankees and red sox baseball rivalry is probably one of the oldest and the biggest blood feud without a doubt yeah definitely the the biggest american sports rivalry and this was at a time where it's not like now where you see guys like Johnny Damon jumping teams and stuff like that from one to the other. This was a big thing. And I wanted to bring this up because it's really important. In 1993, when he goes back to Fenway as a member of the Yankees, yep. the crowd embraced him, mm -hmm. which is not normal for Boston fans. But no. he was so beloved there for being such a great player that they not only embraced him, he went four for four in that game. Yeah with four like i think four singles and by by his fourth hit the fenway crowd was just tipping their hat to him just going nuts yeah like, if you know anything about boston sports fans that is not the way they handle players coming back that's the only thing i could they yeah. are brutal there and this was a guy though i just wanted to bring up this one stat because it's really important um 
he hit in a 162 game span. It went over two years, mm -hmm. but from June of 85 to June of 86, he hit 401. Yeah. Like this was the premier average hitter in the American league during the 1980s. Yes. Just an absolute mainstay. And what I think makes him one of the best all-around baseball players ever is when he goes to the Yankees, he really works on his defense to the max. So yeah. there was this talk about him being a complete offensive player and maybe a slight liability on defense, which I don't really agree with. No. But when he, he was still a great third baseman always, but there was he was such a better offensive player that I feel like people were not comparing them accurately. Yeah, Tony Gwynn had the same knock, and yes. he won, I think, about five gold gloves. When he went to New York, Boggs won two gold gloves. Yes. Like, he really made a commitment to, like, show people, hey, I'm... I'm a complete baseball player. I'm a complete baseball player. Like, yeah, I'm a, you know, amazing hitter, but, like, I field my position. Yeah. Like, there was a game in, uh, I believe, 93, when uh, Jim Abbott, who's a great story... American um, hero. American hero, man. He uh, had only one hand. He was born with only one hand. He pitched a no-hitter for the Yankees in 93. And this is when they were kind of in a pennant race with Toronto. Toronto eventually won, won out because they were just a powerhouse team, yeah. one of the lost, you know, great teams of, of, of baseball. One of the few Blue Jays that teams that were actually great. Yeah, back-to-back, -back, first time since 77, 78 Yankees. But uh, the Jim Abbott game yeah. in the seventh inning, um, Albert Bell hit a hot shot towards the hole at third base, and Boggs made – I mean, he's not Brooks Robinson good defensively, but yes. he made one of the – an amazing play to keep that no-hitter going yeah. for uh, Abbott to uh, eventually And that's finish. one of the most iconic games because Jim Abbott is such a – such a mainstay and like if you watch baseball if you know baseball you know jim abbott because he's he was born with one hand and, and he was a really good pitcher great pitcher yeah and I, I every time i think of him i think of him pitching and throwing the glove onto his hand yeah and he fielded his position that's which what was i mean. like oh my god yeah like jesus <laughs> we might do one on jim abbott man I, i'm getting excited for him yeah getting really excited <laughs> <laughs> But the Yankees, and he went to the Yankees and still, I think he did four all-star seasons. Yeah, yeah. Over his career, um, I believe the number is... Um, he had 12 all-stars all, all together. 12, yeah. 12, uh, 12 straight all-star teams from 85 to 96. Yeah. And the funny thing is, is the Yankees at that time in the early 90s, the late 80s were not kind of the Yankees. And it happened with the whole Steinbrenner suspension and everything, but him having to leave the team for a while and not put his, you know, dirty fingers into everywhere except paying players and, you know, yep. fan experience allowed their scouting department in the early nineties to make some really good choices. Bring up Derek Jeter, Bernie Williams, yep. Jorge Posada. So like 93, they finished second in the AL East 94 strike shortened season. They finished first 95. They end up getting in and um, being the wild card and losing one of the greatest division series, actually the, the first year they had the division series that wasn't strike shortened, um, like 81, they lost. They went up 2-0 against the Mariners, and it ended in that uh, Griffey game yep. um, where he slid and won the game at the Kingdome. 
But like the Yankees really improved. Like from 93, they just kept steadily climbing. And by 96, and Boggs is still a mainstay at third base, still raking, but all the pieces are around him to make a real postseason run, and that's exactly what happens. It's interesting that you brought up the Steinbrenner being taken away from the team because that's literally what everybody attributed it to. God, I can't say that word. But because he would really meddle with the team so much that they just couldn't get anything consistent. Yeah. And then when they suspended him for, I think it was – a year a year or two you yeah know, something like that they flat out just got a great team together and you see what that happened throughout the 90s and really in the 2000s when they became dominant yeah and um, 96 was great for Boggs because that was the year they go into um you know the division series they win yeah they go into the alcs they win and he's finally in his second world series appearance and just like the um uh just like the Red Sox with the Mets in 86, he's on the reverse end. They go down 2-0. Yeah. But then David Cohn saves them in game three. They win game four. Then they win game five. And then they're back at Yankee Stadium for game six after going back to Atlanta down 0-2 and finally win. Yeah. And it's got to be quite an amazing feeling because this was a decade after he had been to his first uh, world series 86 and then 96 it's got to be quite an amazing feeling at the end of your career to get this to be 38 years old yeah and you know finally get it done and after the game there's an interesting story where he wasn't in the game for the final out it was actually charlie hayes as his defensive replacement who caught the final out at third base but boggs is still going to party because Boggs is a partier. Boggs is a partier. So what does he do, Chris? And who discusses that moment quite well? Hey, everybody. Just want to take a quick break to uh, let you know that our Sports Experience podcast is brought to you by Engel Studio here. And uh, they're here in Tucson for all your recording needs. Well, he gets so excited that he jumps on the back of a police horse with yeah. a cop on it, and then they go and run. They pretty much trot around Yankee Stadium. Yankee Stadium, and uh, this is going to get into the next story. Charlie Day from "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia." When this was happening, he was with his friend in Boston and his friend's dad, and they were all watching the game. And his friend's dad just sees Boggs jump on the horse, and he just grabs his heart, and he goes, What are you doing, Boggsy? (laughs) It's one of the funniest things, because you could just imagine these hardcore Boston fans just like, Oh, God, you're killing me. Not only did the Yankees win, he's on a damn horse, which he's afraid of. Which he's afraid of. I love that. Oh, Um, God. So that's going to take us right into his extracurricular activity so uh wade boggs is a very superstitious player yes i found that i didn't i knew that he was a little superstitious but when you get into all the stuff that he did you're like wow that's like almost uh obsessive compulsive yeah like this is like i saw an interview with him when he had first uh, it was probably like mid 90s where he goes where he's with the yankees and he's on conan o'brien And Conan is from Boston, went to Harvard, part of the whole, you know, Harvard comedy writers, people, you know, slew of amazing people. And he was a huge Red Sox fan. And so he was asking him kind of about his superstitions. And they called uh, Wade Boggs, Jim Rice, Hall of Fame outfielder who played with him in Boston, um, gave him the nickname, the Chicken Man, the Chicken Man. Chicken Man. 
And the reason for that is before every game, Boggs was so superstitious, he had to eat a chicken meal before every game. And because of this, he had a cookbook come out <laughs> of chicken recipes. Chicken recipes. And well, let, I want to bring up why he did this. Because yeah. one time his wife cooked him pork chops. Yeah. And he went 0 for 4. And something happened where like a wild pitch hit him in the elbow and like yeah. kind of injured him for not injured him, but like hurt him a little. And it's one of those things where he was just like, all right, never pork chops again. Yep. And it, he never did. He ate chicken. And it makes me think of the uh, major league scene. Where yeah, he's, where uh, he's one like, whole chicken, just like you said. Yeah. <laughs> he wants to sacrifice a chicken. I don't know. Maybe we'll get him KFC or something. Yeah. Like that. I'll is, figure something out. <laughs> yeah, I'll figure something out. Jake, we can't have people throwing up before a game. Exactly. What the hell is this? Oh, damn it! <laughs> There's something about baseball movies where they really, they really take these scenes in real baseball and and kind of you know. And it wasn't just relegated to chicken. If he was playing a day game because of the whole chicken-egg argument, since it was before it, he'd have eggs before a game. Exactly. And I don't know if you've ever played baseball in the hot, hot sun before, but eggs are like milk in that Anchorman scene with Ron Burgundy, like, oh, it's so damn hot. Milk, <laughs> milk was, was a, a bad poor choice. <laughs> Lady in the red hat. <laughs> But that wasn't it for his superstitions. He, he also took batting practice at 517. And then seven seventeen wind sprints. And then seven and it's such an interesting thing. If you're on his team and you're up taking batting practice and it's like five ten, someone's like, Hey, you gotta stop. Yeah. Boggs right. is coming up and you're just like, All right, yeah, I guess. I mean it's Boggs. Well, he's hitting three fifty, so he can do whatever the hell that he wants. Exactly. He was talking about on Conan though, on this great interview, you can YouTube it, you know, by the way, where uh, he takes his wind sprints at seven seventeen, like on the button. So he went to Toronto, and uh, one of the um, one of the uh, uh, score people there decided to mess with the clock and not turn it. Oh, that's great! And he went like zero for four that night. So then the next night they were going to do it again. So when it hit seven sixteen, he started counting to sixty so he could start on time. Oh, that's so great! And just like, uh, but hey, whatever works. Yeah, he, it worked for him mentally. That's the thing that. I can't deny is you can tell it worked for him mentally. And in Boston, he paid, I don't know if he paid him, but he got the announcer to not announce his number when he came to the plate because he didn't do it one day and he had like four or five hits. Yep. So he decided from now on, don't announce my number. And then I think one of the more interesting thing is in the batter's box, you would draw the Hebrew a symbol for life. Yeah. Every single time. And he's not even Jewish. And he's not even Jewish. Which is like... That was something that I looked up. I was like, wait a second. I didn't know Boggs was Jewish. I looked up. He's like, he's not. No. He just... It works. It works. That's that's the thing. It's so mental, especially baseball and like golf. It's such a mental thing where you have to be in the right frame of mind. You know? Like, I'm doing sets tonight at Laughs. I have a routine, not to that extent, yes. but like I have a routine before I do a set, like a booked, like important set. So I get it. Yeah, I mean, I I'm it. not going to that extent, no. but like I get it. Yeah. I can understand. And I'd have, when I played baseball, I'd have the same thing. I'd have to put my batting gloves in a certain pocket. You know, I'd take a certain number of swings in the on deck circle just to get like comfortable and get in the right frame of mind. And, yeah. You well, know, I feel like, especially with baseball, because you're you're missing so much. Your one for three is a fantastic, you know, outing, game. and it's one of the, yeah, it's one of these things where so you're missing two out of the two out of the three at bats, and it's 
you have to keep that mental focus and the consistency of I'm going to get a hit. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to get a hit and you know, good on you, Bogsy. Good on you. But and now we're going to get in. Field. Yeah. So this is what I found probably the most interesting is how much beer he could drink. Before we get into the beer, I kind of okay. want to get okay. into the palimony. Suit. Okay. All right. Well, you lead off because I, when I was researching this, I, I almost thought it was a bit of a joke. Yeah. But then you really read into it. And you're like, oh, this is for real. So in the late eighties, America became pretty Sue happy. And Wade Boggs, like most baseball players, um, even though he's married, not very faithful to his wife. You're on the road all the time. Sometimes you need uh, some female companionship that's not your wife. I don't agree with it, but hey, you do you. Yeah. He met this woman named Margot Adams, and she was kind of his road companion. And she was not just like, you know, a bang maid like Frank Reynolds and It's Always Sunny. I mean, she would go with him on trips. She would, you know do stuff for him. She made him chicken meals before games. I mean, that's how, you know, it's serious. Like we always joke in comedy when we go on the road with somebody else or a couple other people, it's like, that's my road wife. Yep. Like that. She was kind of his road wife and she decided to sue him for $12 million for all the apparent mental pain and suffering and what she had to go through. Not like physical mental, but you know, physical pain and suffering, but just like, Oh, I thought he loved me. Yeah. I did so much for him. What, what the lawsuit said was emotional distress. Yeah. Like, and you got to know he's a baseball player. Yeah. He's probably sleeping with other women too. You're just like a pimp's bottom bitch is yes. what you are. Not to be negative. I'm sure she's a decent woman, I guess. But so anyway, she sues him for $12 million and she writes a tell-all in Playboy about their relationship. She even posed for Playboy. Um, and it, wrote a bunch of intimate stuff about their relationship that might have been true, might not have been true, but it was a bunch of stuff that you never want somebody that you're intimate with sharing. It's not yeah, for the public. It's not a kiss and tell thing. It's yeah. like, okay, yeah, I cheated on my wife. You know, I'm not excusing that, but by the same token, baseball players, a lot of them are generally pieces of garbage will cheat on their wives and stuff like with, that. With regards with, with that, I, I found a lot of professional athletes in that era. Yeah. Um, that was huge. But I, I, maybe it was before that, too, that, I mean, you just don't really know. The but, traveling. Yeah, know? the traveling. But it's funny because during this time, when he was on the road with his wife, he only hit 221. And when he was on the road with Margot Adams, he hit 341. Yep. <laughs> like, that's just the. Uh, that's just your bottom bitch. And look, ah, as a super, and I get it, as a superstitious guy like Boggs, if I'm putting my junk in someone else and I'm hitting 341, they're coming with me to every American League city when we get on that bus and yeah. or plane. Like, it's just what it is. But a judge, you know, they bring forth the $12 million suit. The judge pretty much laughs at it and says, I'm taking $11.5 of this away because she probably had to spend her own money to meet him and spent money on him and stuff and said, this is going down to $500,000 and you're settling out of court yeah. likely for a much, much, much significantly smaller sum. A lot of the times it's 10% or 25% yeah. of that. So it's, you know, you can look at it being like 50 or 100K, and which is probably what she spent in that. Yeah, I mean. Exactly. Like, and he probably, you know, but had she not done the Playboy stuff, had she not brought the suit forward, had she just said like, look, I can't do this anymore privately, yeah. you know, not expose anything, not necessarily extort him, but be like, just write me a check and I'll go away. Yeah. Write me it. And he probably would have done that 
and he took kind of a hit for that. But uh, Wade Boggs, outside of this, is most famous outside of his superstitions, his chicken, his bang maids. He was a prodigious drinker. Uh, one of the best, probably the best baseball player drinker, if that makes sense. Yeah. Probably MLB's top drinker. How about that? Yeah. Not only was he a top drinker, he was a top player. Like there are some guys whose careers were ruined by drinking. Yes. His career was amazing. I don't know if drinking played a role, but drinking was a part of this gentleman's life. For his whole career. Mm-hmm. That, that's one of the, So we brought up It's Always Sunny earlier. They have this iconic episode where he goes from New York to L.A., yeah, and they have a they have one uh, stopover, and he drinks a hundred and seven beers. Well, no, it's it was a hundred and seven in a whole day. Yeah, on that cross country flight, it was like in the mid sixties. So he would show up twelve beers deep. Yeah, to have some at the airport, and then but he, in that day, he drank a hundred and seven beers, which is utterly insane. Like I'm a guy who drank a lot, Chris. You know this. I think I was surprised at how much you drank. Yeah. It's one of those where you're like, damn, Dom can put them down. Boggs would be putting down like f- four or five times what you were. My my record for a 24-hour period is probably high 50s, low 60s. Yeah. But that's like 12, 12 a.m. to 12 p.m. And that's like when I was in the zone. Of drinking. Of drinking, yeah. And well, that's the thing is he never really got out of the zone of drinking. And and that's that's what's fascinating because like I remember days like that where I would just be like completely out to lunch feeling like garbage, just complete garbage. And this guy's stepping up to the plate and getting three and four hits. Well, his teammates said that he would average 50 or 60 beers on these cross-country, you know, that like it wasn't like some thing where he was like, holy shit, did you see how much he drank this time? It was like, oh, yeah, he... Box is drinking. Yeah, he's (laughs) drinking 50 beers. Like, that's just how it goes. He would just have a six-pack after a game before they even hit the team bus, like nothing, just putting them away. Yeah. And it's absolutely insane. And like you said about that Sunny episode, the main characters try and do that on a cross-country flight. Well, Boggs is on that episode. Yeah, he is. It's fantastic. And they're all drinking, and Charlie Day says... I th- we're pretty sure uh, he was drinking real beer. Just yeah, they because, were drinking non-alcoholic beer. Yeah. The cast. Yeah. The cast was, but uh, they said that Boggs was hanging out just drinking and having a good time like he normally would. Like yeah. Charlie was like, there wasn't like non-alcoholic beer for him. He was just like being Wade Boggs. Which is great. He's like, Charlie, do you think I won all those batting titles in that World Series because it was fun? <laughs> no, because I wanted to win. And then um, the D-, D, played by Caitlin Olsen, has no idea what baseball is. No. So she takes the name, and because she's drunk and slurring, thinks it's Boss Hog from the Dukes of Hazard. I love that. How you doing, Boss, Boss Hog? And it's well, just like, Deandra. <laughs> it's just somebody sitting next to her. It's one of the best episodes of anything that I mean. It's one of my favorite episodes of all time. Oh, and then like because it just plays it because Mac is like overly cautious as commissioner making Passenger 57 references, Dennis is banging desert trash, Frank's trying to get laid on the plane and not thinking there's going to be enough beer. Yep. Charlie thinks Wade Boggs is dead because in his vision when he they have saying Wade saying the Boggs. ghost of Wade Boggs. Yeah. It's so good. I love when he sits down and he goes, can I get a couple of rum and Cokes? <laughs> like he's literally trying to drink 100 beers or 60 beers through the through the thing. He's like, can I get a couple of rum and Cokes? And the best part is, is he's eating a chicken on the plane yes, while he's talking to chicken. Wade Boggs. It's... it's all the references are perfect. Oh, it's so and then, good. 
at the end, which is my favorite, is they go to a baseball diamond and Charlie absolutely ropes one. Well, Charlie used to play baseball in college. In I real know. Life. Yeah, you can so, tell yeah. there's one of those things where, and this happens in baseball movies, where you can just tell when a guy's an actor and you're just like, you've never w- once, once picked yeah. up a glove. Charlie Sheen's a good example of that in Major League of the opposite, where he was a really good high school pitcher. Yes. And you can tell like from his pitching form, like this guy... Knew how to pitch. And like apparently, you know, because his character averages like 100 miles an hour, him throwing the ball is like high 80s. Yeah. I mean, this is somebody that was a, a can real, play baseball. And this was exactly what I was referencing was the other pitcher in Major League, the guy who like puts Chelsea stuff, Ross. Yes, yeah. Bardall, Crisco. Does not look like a pitcher. No. He doesn't look like he's ever wound up and, and really pitched. Charlie Sheen looks f- like real that's yeah. just one of those things charlie sheen is real <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there's there's another um wade boggs has done kind of like some off-field stuff here and there as far as like media probably it might not be my favorite but it's definitely top three favorite simpsons episodes and it was an important simpsons episode this was made in 92 where it was the first time they used to be on thursdays they out viewed the Cosby show. Yeah. And it was like a turning point for that series. And basically what it was is the Simpsons got nine of the best major league players at the time to be in this episode because Mr. Burns was putting together a power plant softball team and he made a million dollar bet. So he got in a bunch of ringers and Wade Boggs was one of the ringers. Yep. And some, what ends up happening is every player who's not at Homer's position played by Daryl Strawberry right field um, something bad happens to him. So, like, Ozzie Smith falls into the Springfield mystery spot. Don Mattingly has to leave the team because uh, Mr. Burns is like George Steinbrenner because of his sideburns. Sideburns, I love that. Roger Clemens. What sideburns? Yeah, Roger Clemens gets um, hypnotized into thinking he's a chicken. Uh, Steve Sachs goes to jail for a quintuple murder he doesn't do. Uh who's the uh, catcher Mike Sosha actually works at the power plant and gets radiation poisoning Ken Griffey Jr. with the gigantism I mean it's I felt like the Ken Griffey Jr. was the uh, preempt to the the steroids yeah like, this is what the guys are gonna look like in about 10 Later. years you're just like oh okay it's like there's a party in my mouth and everyone's invited <laughs> yes and then Jose Canseco who threw a shit fit because they wanted to do a bull Durham thing with Mrs. Krabappel he ends up going to a house fire and taking every home appliance and item out of it. But with Boggs is my favorite is he's in a bar. Of course, he's at Moe's yep. drinking and he's arguing with Barney about England's greatest prime minister. Oh, it's so good. Barney's like, and I say England's greatest prime minister is Lord Palmerston. And Boggs goes, Pitt the Elder. <laughs> Lord Palmerston. Pitt the Elder. All right, Boggs, you asked for it. And Barney knocks Boggs out. Yep. It's such a great, iconic Simpsons episode. Just the fact they have him in a bar, though, considering his drinking, it just like it's the perfect way for him to go. Yeah, it's perfect, man. It's perfect. Oh man. So any, anyway, back to back to the rest of Boggs career because after yeah. the, after the World Series, he's thirty eight. Yep. So in ninety seven has another three hundred season, but he also gets to pitch in a game. Oh yeah, he pitched two and a third innings. I think I believe it was two and a third innings. Yeah, two and a third innings. And he was a knuckleball pitcher. Yep. And he ended up getting a strikeout. Like, what the hell? But by 97, at the end of 97, the Yankees are like, okay, he's 39 years old. 
we're going to move on. He had his contract extension. He got his title. Yeah. We're going to, you know, roll with Scott Brocious, who we just signed from Oakland and who ended up breaking my heart as a World Series MVP the next year. I hate you, Scott Brocious, so effing much, you grindy douche. But Yeah, you think the Padres are going to take it this year? <laughs> oh, God. Dude, like, I will have a one-man riot if they make the playoffs. Lord knows what. Like, I'm back on the wagon if they ever won a World Series. But. Oh, awesome, man. <laughs> well, so the Yankees are pretty much done with him, and yeah. then he goes to the Tampa Ray or Tampa, Tampa Bay, Bay Devil, Rays. Devil Rays. Yeah, as a, as a free agent, and the reason he does this is, A, he wants to go home, but B, by that point in his career, he's about to un- reach a very difficult milestone, which is 3,000 career hits. Yes, and I think he's the only player ever to hit a home run on his 3,000th hit. Uh, three people. Three people three have done people? it. Yeah, oh, three people? Yeah, okay. three have done it, but... Well, he was the first then, let's say that. Yeah, so by 99, because in 98 he goes to the uh, Devil Rays, um... He finally gets his chance. And at the same time, Tony Gwynn, who we brought up before, yep. had done it maybe like two weeks before in Montreal uh, in front of like a thousand French Canadians because they don't like baseball there. But Boggs is at home in Tampa and he hits a dinger for 3,000. And I don't know if you've ever seen this play. Major League Baseball has it on YouTube. He goes deep and as he's rounding second base, you look and a guy ran onto the field. Oh, yeah. And. I don't know what he was doing. He wasn't going to hurt Boggs, but he's losing his mind. And as Boggs is right about to cross the plate, you see security just lay this poor bastard out. Yep. But Boggs, when he finally gets to the plate, he gets on on both knees and he kisses home plate. And it was real. It's it's a really cool piece of history, and honestly, one of the better moments in Ray's history. Yes. Um, especially for a young franchise like that that did nothing for like their first decade. Yes. In in existence. But he ends up getting it. Um, by 2000, though, he's out of the league. And there was one drinking story, one more, which is absolutely insane. One of the equipment managers was with him on a flight. It was like an hour. It was an hour flight. The equipment manager said he drank a case of beer on the hour flight and did not use the bathroom. That's crazy. How? How is that possible? Like, I, some of these stories you want to be like call bullshit like oh he was drinking three two alcohol or something like that but yeah like no there are so many of them that they kind of have to be true they have to be and there's so many players that are just like yeah no that happened like yeah (laughs) i'm sure that happened i want to talk about the devil rays real quick because he actually yes yes, what what happened with them in the hall of fame actually changed um because before as a player you could pick the team that you're representing in the Hall of Fame. So you can pick the hat that you wear, essentially. Yeah. Um, and he picked the Devil Race. And a lot of people thought that he picked them because they gave him compensation. They gave him a bunch of money to do so. Yeah. He denies that, but... I can't imagine, though, that that's not true. Yes. There, there's no... He played for him for two seasons. There's no reason why he would pick them over Boston or... Even the Yankees. That's what I mean. Title. Like, yeah. I think it started before Boggs, though. It oh, okay. started before Boggs because people were very – I don't know if they paid him off or not, Yeah. but Dave Winfield on his Hall of Fame plaque, guess what hat he's wearing? I don't know. He's wearing a Padres hat because he spent the first like six years of his career in San Diego before okay. the Yankees bought him. Yeah. He's wearing a Padres hat. Nobody thinks of Dave Winfield as a Padre. It's true. You either think of Dave Winfield as a Yankee completely imploding in the postseason after an awesome regular season – or do you think of him winning a World Series as a Blue Jay and coming through when it mattered most? Mm-hmm. Like you don't, even though he was, I 
like, I mean, he led the league in RBIs in San Diego. He was a fantastic player. You don't associate that with Dave Winfield. Yes. So by the time Boggs is like, I want to be a Devil Ray, it's like, no. <laughs> yeah, that's when they, I feel like that's when they made that decision to be like, we will not be letting players pick the team. We are, uh, the Hall of Fame representative is actually going to pick the team. Yeah. And Boggs is in as a Red Sox because he's a Red Sox legend. His he numbers should be. retired by yeah. him. Yeah. I mean, when everyone thinks Wade Boggs, you, you think- either think drinking, chicken, Red Sox. Exactly. Like, those are the things you associate with Wade Boggs. But yeah, just an interesting person and one of the most fun research things I've ever done for one of our uh, subjects, though. I agree. I really like this one a lot. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. This is the Sports Experience Podcast. Please follow me on uh, Sequin Comedy. And uh, you can follow me at Dominic or at Detola Dominic. And make sure to follow us, the Sports Experience Podcast, on Instagram. Thank you all very much.